Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the 1% and a billionaire tax are mainstream concepts today, but back in 2011, they were fringe ideas. Enter Occupy, a populist socio-political movement that sprang up from the streets in Boston and elsewhere before becoming a massive international happening. Occupy's message about social and economic inequality changed how many Americans think and talk about economic inequality today. The top 1% have experienced dramatic income gains over the last 30 years. Most Americans have not. It's not about greed. It's about a sense of unfairness. There are a lot of people that want to work and they just can't find the jobs. I'm $45,000 in debt at 20 years old. Their debt is unpayable. The entire world is fed up with the huge disparity of wealth caused by the present system. It used to be one man equals one vote, now it's one dollar equals one vote. Corporations are people, my friend. Of course they are. We need to separate money from politics, taking back the power of the electoral process. We have a fearful government. They consider Occupy to be verging on a domestic terrorist threat. Ten years ago, the protesters who flocked to Occupy Boston were considered a threat by some when they took over Dewey Square. Hundreds gathered to become a part of the activist community, which included functioning space with clothing and kitchen tents, media, and even a library. But just two and a half months later, after it opened, it was gone. Still, many argue Occupy Boston's short-lived existence has had long-term impact. On this 10th anniversary, local Occupy participants assess the movement's successes and shortcomings. Later in the show, The Night Before Christmas, It's Not, an anti-holiday book offering stories nothing like the well-known uplifting tales of seasonal cheer. It's the most miserable time of the year. I have very mixed feelings about the holidays. I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, miserable stories in general. I think, uh, I think we all have miserable stories, and, uh, and I think that they're very entertaining. I think that, um, you know, especially at the holidays, it's a way of saying, you know, my problems, are, your problems are probably a little worse than my problems, uh, and I'd, I'd like to see you fall down rather than fall down myself. Miserable Holiday Stories, 20 Festive Failures That Are Worse Than Yours by Alex Bernstein is his decidedly different take on the most wonderful time of the year, and it's our December selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me now, Jimmy Two Feathers, a community organizer and founding member of Dance New England and Earth Drum Council, as well as Concord Neighborhood Network. Jimmy was involved in the People of Color Working Group in Dewey Square. Welcome, Jimmy. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. 
And also with me, Myrna Morales, a librarian and director of the Massachusetts Coalition of Domestic Workers. Myrna was involved in the Andre Lord to Howard Zen Library in Dewey Square. Thanks for joining us, Myrna. Thank you for having me. All right. A lot of people will be thinking about this 10th anniversary from the perspective of history, long ago history. They didn't, I mean, they have some vague recollection of hearing about it, and they probably don't even realize how much what happened there has infiltrated really our whole, our lexicon for for sure. But our thinking about the big discussion about inequality and, and inequity right now. But I just want to lay the groundwork for what the experience was like on the ground. Jimmy Two Feathers, when you first went in to occupy Boston in Dewey Square, you first came as an observer. Tell me what even drew you down to take a peek at what was happening there. I've been an activist since I was in my first year of college in Boston College. We took over Gasson Hall for higher minority enrollment. I think we were asking for 4% then. And now... When Occupy started, I wanted, I thought it was my last chance in maybe in my lifetime to really make a difference and that there was something happening and I wanted to see what it was and be a part of it. So how would you describe what Occupy was? Well, I, I tell people I was actually kind of embedded as an observer to watch the structures that were being created. And what I learned was that, that these kids, they only um, built what they knew and there were a lot of the same issues in the larger culture that were actually within Occupy that needed to be investigated. I was in the POC and what was really, really remarkable there was I got to speak with other people of color about our own issues within people of color, colorization and class and and allies. So it was really important for me to analyze what was going on to a, a lot of observing, but I did participate fully with the POC work group. So that's people of color working group there. I was really more trying to get in touch with the just the scene, you know, if you're there every day, what's happening? What, what was going on? There were a lot of people. Some people took it upon themselves to come down because they also want to see what's going on. It was a very unique experience. Uh, and then, you know, as time went on, there were people that came in that were street people and they didn't have anywhere else to go and they could be fed and be taken care of. So it was a mix of people. I had friends from from all different walks of life that I bumped into there and then started working with the organizational groups, with the POC and with the larger groups around um, facilitating and, and the town meetings that they would have. But I was really curious about the structures, the difference between how, how women were treated there and how the people of color were integrated or not integrated I remember one very specific indication of that was when the mayor, I think Benito at the time, was getting on us about cleaning up the site. And a lot of people did a lot of work and cleaned up the site and they put all the trash and everything in a, in a certain corner. Uh, and that happened to be the corner where the people of color were hanging out. But because there was such a separation even there, the, the white kids that were cleaning up didn't realize that because they never hung out in that, in that quadrant. Uh, and I went, hmm, this is, uh, you know, interesting. We, we still have all these walls up, even though we're right within the same space with each other. So I think it's important to explain that this was just a big tent area 
that grew and grew as more people became interested in the movement. It started out in these few cities, as I said, and then in in the end, it was in 82 countries. So it was a global movement as well. So what was happening in Boston somewhat reflected what was happening across the way. But the driving message was that this is very much a democracy. We are young people who are sort of taking back our power as much as we can. And that we are the 99%, and somebody needs to understand that the 1% are taking over everything to our detriment. I just want to give a listen to uh, Philip Anderson. He was a media representative back in 2011 for Occupy Boston, speaking about what the movement wanted to accomplish. We are a leaderless group. Uh, We work as a direct democracy. Uh, People uh, can volunteer anywhere that they'd like. Uh, We relish having those volunteers help us out. We have uh, working groups within, uh, within the larger organization that help develop proposals, that help develop ideas to bring to the General Assembly. At this point, we're not looking for one political leader. That's uh, not how we work. Some of the goals that, we're, uh, that we have decided on as a General Assembly is uh, eliminating corporate money from politics, or if that's not possible, having extreme transparency, uh, ending corporate personhood. We're here for the long haul. We're not here to have some figurehead legislation passed or to try and be placated with, you know, small kind of laws with no teeth. We want true systemic change. What that is, we haven't decided on as a group, but we feel that American government and society in general doesn't represent the 99%, you know, the majority of Americans. And we're going to be here until we feel that there's been a real change, an actual change in how people are represented. So, uh, Myrna, you were the librarian there, and I played that clip to get an understanding of just the piece that uh, Philip says there is we haven't decided what it is yet. So there was a lot of education going on, both about protesting in and of itself, but also about what the young people who were there and very sincere about their efforts were trying to accomplish. How did the library come into play as a part of that education? One thing that's really important, I think, for me to talk about is that the Occupy movement, at least in Boston, was was a very much intergenerational. There was a lot of young folks there, but it was all and it was also intergenerational. And as a result, what the feeling that you got when you walked into and into Occupy, at least Dewey Square, was a lot of struggle. And it was a lot of struggle based on what people were trying to conceive what democracy looks like, right? You know, that chance. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. It was often heard on the ground in Occupy in Dewey Square because there was, you know, people who came from very different walks of life. There was a lot of students that were participating, but and also a lot of folks who were active in the community that were looking to figure out a way to leverage the ways in which, you know, Boston historically becomes a a ground for a lot of experimentation from the university and also looking at what are the real interests and what ways can we be strategic to leverage the ways in which folks are coming together around an anti-capitalist perspective and how do we use that to amplify the message of those most affected by the systemic structures that Occupy was trying to address. And one of the ways that the libraries did that, or one of the ways, I was one of many librarians that participated. You know, originally it was a small library, and, you know, in, in, in any new world or any construction of new world, there's a couple of library scholars. John Bushman is one of them. Hope Olson is another of them. They talk about that in any new 
society, right? And we can look at Occupy Dewey Square as a construction, an attempt to build some form of utopia, um, you need to have a library because you need to have information structures. And that was very evident also that there was a disconnect, not just from old history, right? Like people saying this is the first time a tent city was put up, but not understanding that in fact, Mel King in the eighties had done tent cities. Like there were people who were looking in Boston, but also abroad that had tried to reconstruct what, you know, a, a society that was one that, that allowed for a dignified and a just life. And that was a history that was disconnected. And that's one of the things, one of the takeaways I think that I as a librarian um, took away was just like, oh, I actually, political education has to be an important part in reconstructing the world. The political history that came before us is very important in trying to reconstruct the world that we live in. And, and in that way, that is a role, that was a role that the library played. Another role that the library played is when, when things outside of the camp or outside of the tent that the library occupied got hectic, people would move into the library space to just meditate, sit, and, and, and read, and, and learn more. So it was a safe space in the tent. That's right. It was a safe space. So we attempted the librarians, which came out of the radical reference. Um, like one of the things that was really important to understand about occupying the context of library history is that librarianship has historically been apolitical. Librarians and librarianship has historically been neutral and apolitical and haven't taken a political position um, only in recent years has that been a thing that comes from the pressure of other younger librarians who have come in through but like that's one of the more notable impacts that Occupy has had on the profession was that it actually brought out librarians who we, we were able to find each other those of us that were looking to utilize librarianship as what it was meant to be as a form of empowerment to the public. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Jimmy Two Feathers and Myrna Morales discussing the successes and shortcomings of Occupy Boston, marking its 10th anniversary. Uh, let me just have you go back a second and just ask what drew you to Dewey Square to take part in the library there? What, what was it that motivated you? I doubled down on my efforts. Like, I started going through the radical reference. I was a new librarian then, and I didn't have a lot of experience. I was like, this was an opportunity. And, and to, truth be told, this is, that is where I wanted to end up in terms of being a librarian is much more within grassroots spaces. But it really, I doubled down my efforts when there was a community meeting that came through at the start of, of, of Occupy, where the Right to the City had done a large protest towards Citibank and Bank of America and talking about the eviction rate and holding them accountable for the levels of displacement that they were um, participating in in the city of Boston at that time, as well as in, in, the, in, the, in the largest struggle, right? Like 2008, the housing bubble, we know that Bank of America had a, an impact on that. Do Me to Occupy was just how connected between the racial analysis that was existing in that moment, that there was such a large draw of white people in it. And there was not a conversation of how white supremacy actually contributes, like is actually inculcated, right, in, in, in capitalism. Like you need those, that they, 
capitalism needs white supremacy to exist. So if you're going to talk about the 1% or you're going to talk about the 99%, you must have a racialized analysis. You must have a gender analysis. That's what drew me further into the space. And I want to go back for people who will not know or recognize the names Audre Lorde and Howard Zinn about how even the naming of the library had a greater meaning because we were referring, that was a reference to two very potent organizers and people who were frank about the systems that they were working against. Audre Lorde was a black woman who died in 1992. Howard Zinn was locally known here, and he died in 2010, the year before Occupy Boston and Occupy Globally took off. I want my listeners to hear a bit from each of them so they have an understanding of how this library and its framing and its education fit in in the space of Occupy Boston. So first, here's Audre Lorde speaking about the power of so-called outsiders speaking up for themselves. I think that silence is one of, of course, one of the ways in which we're controlled, one of the very effective implants by which we control ourselves. And it's something that each one of us individually and collectively will die of if we do not find a way to break it. And I've seen this come up over and over again in the women's movement, in the black power movement, in the lesbian movement, over and over again. Those questions that are acceptable can be asked. And always there is the, the tendency not to ask those that do not fit into a pattern. And here's Howard Zinn speaking about how social movements lead to change. Building free institutions within the old society and sort of liberating uh, the ground one by one, you know, uh, liberating this institution and that institution and, you know, workers taking over industries, students taking over and universities, uh, people in neighborhoods taking over the running of the, of the neighborhoods and, and, and the security of the neighborhood. I, th- yeah, I think it will come, not gradualism in the sense of, you know, <laughs> waiting too long, uh, but, but yes, uh, working to liberate society piece by piece from within. So that's a contextual understanding of the naming of the library, which underscores what, what you've been saying, Myrna. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Jimmy Two Feathers and Myrna Morales, and we're talking about the impact of the Occupy movement during its 10th year anniversary. Uh, Myrna, you wanted to add something? Thank you for uplifting Audre Lorde and Howard Zinn. You know, there was a conversation, to some degree, a contentious conversation around naming the library. And I think that originally one of the members of the library, who wasn't a librarian, but was a bookstore owner and donated a lot of their books to to the library, wanted the name Howard Zinn. And some of us had, uh, had known that Audre Lorde was a librarian, and we felt it was more fit to name it Audre Lorde. Um, and then there was another librarian who kind of came in and was just like, well, why don't we call it Audre Lorde to Howard Zinn? And someone was like A to Z. And so we kind of all agreed on that. Um, but it was, you know, it was a contentious naming because folks didn't know Audre Lorde. Not to the extent that folks know now, which is one of the reasons why I think you're playing the piece so that people do become familiar with Audre Lorde. But folks, a lot of folks knew ha- uh, Howard Zinn. And so that kind of tells you also like an understanding of the authors, right? Like we can look at it as a librarian. I look at that and I I also have an assessment 
when people know who Howard Zinn is, but doesn't know who Audrey Lloyd is. So let me say that you've hit upon a point, and I'm going to uh, start with you, Jimmy, to get a response to it. And that is the whole educational piece and just the group of people that came together. Myrna mentioned that a lot of the librarians had traditionally been apolitical, but you noted that most of the young people, certainly some of the young white people who came, were apolitical as well. Um, and yet here they were. Uh, very involved in what became quite a political movement. So talk a bit about that as you observed them trying to figure out and what people do take away, and then they have a vague understanding of what Occupy was about. They know that it's a leaderless, that was the big thing, leaderless, but they call themselves leaderful situations where that nobody was a leader, but everybody was a leader, so to speak. I mean, it's funny because when I first got down there, I, I one of the questions I asked, and it was a loaded question, it was intentional, was, well, who's in charge? Uh, because I wanted to hear the feedback of what people thought. And um, what I got back was very stern. With, no, we're all in charge. We're all taking responsibility. Uh, but there was another piece of me that said, well, who's cooking the food and who's cleaning up the camp? and who is running the meetings. I wanted to explore that more because I am a student of Howard's Inn too. And the, I, I read the people's history of the United States and I realized that every major event in American history, there was another story to it. And he always would say, you know, you have to go find the defeated ones because the, the, the ones who win to get to write the history of what happened. But if you want the whole story, you have to find the defeated people to find the rest of the story and very often the real story. So I spent a lot of time socializing with the young people and wanted to know, you know, why they had come down there and what they knew about history and, and realized that it was no surprise. You know, um, Columbus didn't discover America and, and, and on and on. But the other piece of it was who is in power. There were gender politics playing out and working stuff out. And if Occupy had lasted longer, we were looking at getting a permanent site and moving out of Dewey Square and working with the other organizations in the Hispanic community and other communities. So there was a lot of opening up and a lot of cross-pollinization, I, I think, real cross-pollinization for the first time. Uh, Jimmy, let me follow up with that and say, you mentioned if Occupy had lasted, and I mentioned earlier that it lasted about two and a half months. Eventually, the police came and, you know, pushed the encampment out. That's how it came to a physical end anyway. But do you think if it had gone on longer, were there better understandings, better collaborativeness, better intersectionality so that what was being built there, even if it wasn't a traditional kind of system, could have gone on further? Um, yes, it could. Because in the end days, I remember going to a meeting with uh, officials from the city of Medford and doing um, some environmental protests in Alwife to save the silver maples that were going there and people who were actually occupying the space. So it became a center for, well, what do we need to do now? What's next? Where do people need help? And then amongst the people of color, we really got to do self-analyzations with each other for the first time. I remember the PLC, we had our, our Sunday meetings and, and we really went and had conversations that I never had ability to have before. And we were looking at abandoned properties and, and things that we could rehabilitate. And we were looking for more of a permanent location before it broke up. Here's a clip of an Occupy Boston protester explaining the importance of the movement. 
It's really great to see people kind of stand up and increase the visibility of those problems. To say we're not just going to sit back and accept that uh, these problems exist, we're going to actually at least at least stand up and, and point at the, at the issues and point at our desire for change. Even if these aren't Congress people who are creating new laws that are changing things, but at least now when you, when you have so many people walking by or hearing about it on the news, they're aware that there are a lot of people who are getting up and, and kind of pointing at the issues and saying, we need to see change because we can't, this is not a sustainable situation for anyone. So I wanted to just, you know, hear some of the voices down there because they were pretty determined that they were in sync with what else was going on here in Boston and around the world. I should note that in 2011, which was the year of Occupy Boston and Occupy in general, there were civil uprisings in Syria at the time. I'm thinking of another incident where these 15 youths were arrested for scrawling graffiti on a school wall. So young people were, you know, interested and 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 uh, invigorated and looking around to try to figure out how they could respond, particularly to this economic crisis that we were still experiencing from 2008 and beyond. It had just gotten worse. And I think for somebody like, this is an Occupy Boston organizer, Renee, talking about the frustration of college and debt, because at the core of Occupy, this protest movement was really about economic inequity. So here is Renee. I feel like our culture doesn't really allow for people to be dignified doing things that don't necessarily involve a college degree. There are a lot of college-educated people here who don't have jobs or who have a part-time job that doesn't use the skill that they have anyways. Um, and so in a way that works to our benefit because we have really brilliant people here with really brilliant ideas looking to use their talents to create a better world. That's exciting to me. But in fact, as we talked about, it was a short-lived in that moment. Uh, maybe, as Jimmy Two Feathers said, it could have gone on if certain situations had continued. But I want to know from both of you how you think it impacted those young people who were there and yourselves. Can you link it to any way that it changed you? So I'll start with you, Myrna. Um, I agree with uh, Jimmy. I think that some of the alumni from the Occupy Boston movement have gone on to do some pretty impressive, albeit small-scale experiments, um, around building inequities and a very intersectional addressing all the systemic um, the systemic structures or attempting to address the different systemic structures that they became familiar with. And there are organizers that dismiss Occupy as just this white-led movement um, and didn't necessarily do much for the role of, of moving us towards collective liberation. Um, and, 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 and for me, it's, it's, it definitely has impacted me in terms of like, in terms of watching a real construction or people attempting to build the kind of society, the kind of world that they want to live in. And there are and continue to be really passionate and, and emboldened by that, by that energy of, of, of sitting in the middle of financial district, downtown, God knows how, like there's the Fed, the, the, the different types of banks that are in, in that area. And there's just, you know, the image always strikes me of like this small experiment on the Rose Greenway attempting to 
to say like, you know what, this idea has come and we're setting it in motion. You know, when I think about my life and my own trajectory in my life and, and being more bold, I can't imagine that if I had not participated or had not known about Occupy Boston, that I wouldn't have been as a much of a risk taker around some of the ideas or my own intuition, right? Like, you know, Cornel West said once on, 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 on a Bill Maher show that sometimes you just got to let the funk of the people rise. And Occupy was the funk of the people rising. And, and you know, and I carry that stench with me where, wherever I go. And it's one of the reasons why I end up where, where I am right now, because it is a strong intersection between race, class, and gender. Domestic workers are probably one of the most hyper-exploited professions and dehumanizing professions where the working conditions can, we can do so much more for that. And, 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 and yeah, like fighting for, fighting for and with along folks who are affected adversely by the systemic structures has been, you know, ha- having a methodology and a process and seeing that blow up in Occupy in terms of seeing a, ma- a number of experiments um, sh- uh, show up around trying to build a new world has, has, has stayed with me as, as, as both an organizer and, and as a librarian. Jimmy, uh, the same question to you. Well, in, 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 yes, being more risk taker, um, my some of my native elders call me he who dances with elephants because when I I see something in the room, I, I point it out and and let's not look back at me, but let's deal with the issue. At the end of Occupy, there were a lot of creative possibilities. One was that we were talking about occupying um, the houses that were under, underwater, people with unfair mortgages, and negotiate with the bank. Um, and take the house from the bank until until there was a fair negotiation. There were a lot of creative and a lot of creative things that were rippled out um, that helped me realize that I'm not alone out there doing this work in the world. There are a lot of people. Um, we just have to find ways to get their attentions. And and last is you know we now have uh, we had the whole George Floyd thing that went around the world, and I always watched all of these murders. Of, of black people and you know, it, it rises up in the media and then it dies down. And I wanted to know what the difference was this time, why it went around the world and why it was so sustained. And I believe that's because the pandemic oppressed a whole lot of white people globally. And for the first time now, they really experience what it's like to be oppressed and not be able to go out and do the things that you wanna do. And I think that's what reared everything up now. So we're in another chapter. Um, with a lot more opportunities globally to to make change. Was it worth it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was worth it for me because it gave me a sense of self of what I can do and how I can motivate other people. And, you know, um, Howard Zinn is really important to me and, and, and having his name uh, go on and have people read the things that he wrote. He, he uh, was a real mentor for me that taught me really, you know, to look behind the curtain, to see what's behind the curtain and who's running things, who's really running things. And you would be very surprised. So there's no going back. And I hope that now with the current situations that we can get another version of Occupy up and running again. Was it worth it, Myrna? Absolutely. It definitely gave me a taste of the level of endurance that is required to actually 
rebuild some kind of better world from 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 scratch, right? Like you build with who who comes to you build with those who come to the table, and and you know and sometimes those the experiences are vastly different, which leads to vastly different agendas. And so that big tent, I think, prepared us for the polarization that this country is experiencing in this moment. Well, I thank you both for joining me on this 10th anniversary of Occupy Boston and the Occupy movement. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will be fascinated by your experiences there. And it's quite something to live through history, and certainly both of you did um, in this moment. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jimmy Two Feathers is a community organizer and founding member of Dance New England and Earth Drum Council, as well as Concord Neighborhood Network. Myrna Morales is a librarian and director of the Massachusetts Coalition of Domestic Workers. Coming up, humorous Alex Bernstein is not having a holly jolly Christmas, but then again, he wouldn't. He always had a jaundiced view of the jingling all the way holiday. Bernstein's contrarian take is that misery rules the day during the holiday season. Despondent characters populate the short stories in his new book called, you guessed it, Miserable Holiday Stories, 20 Festive Failures That Are Worse Than Yours. It's our December selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We'll be right back.